Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Today on Banter, we'll be speaking with Sally Sattel. Sally is a resident scholar here at AEI. She's also a practicing psychiatrist and lecturer at Yale University School of Medicine. Her work examines mental health policy as well as political trends in medicine, and her research touches on issues of critical importance, including public health, addiction, and the opioid crisis in America. Thanks for joining the podcast, Sally. Thank you very much. Well, we're very glad to have you, Sally. I was telling Phoebe beforehand that you were my first friend at AEI when I first came, took me under your wing and tried to show me how this place operates, and it was very kind of you. And of course, I had admired your writing for a long time. Sally is kind of a in some respects, a classic AI scholar, and that she has taken a position on some tough issues that sets her apart mm-hmm. from the consensus, in my view, that she's different from everybody else in public health or who comments on the issues that she comments on. And that makes her great. And she's also right more often mm-hmm. than the others are. And so I wanted to start out by asking you about your recent piece in Liberties that described sort of, I hope it's the first of a trilogy of your time in Ohio. And you wrote about, you started out by writing about, I think, an issue that's long been on your mind and sets you apart from the consensus view. And that is how we should view addiction with regard to it being a disease or being something that someone can overcome through discipline or personal agency. And give us a little thumbtack sketch of that long-standing concern of yours for our listeners. Sure. Well, let me set the stage a little bit by saying that, as you mentioned, I spent a, a year from September 2018 to 19 in a place called Ironton, Ohio, which is a small town of about 10,000 in southeastern Ohio. It's, it's one of the three cities in the tri-state area, which is, comprises Huntington, West Virginia, which is infamous for, sadly, its overdose rate several years ago due, due to the opioid crisis. And then Ashland, Kentucky is the other of the three, and they're all on the Ohio River. And that town would be called, according to Lyman Stone, Rust Belt, Appalachia. It wasn't deep Appalachia, but Rust Belt, and it's certain, but it certainly did have characteristics of you know, Appalachia as well. And, you know, it's a town, the story is fairly familiar, unfortunately, that started to unravel very slowly due to industrial concerns in about the 60s. And that gained a lot of momentum in the 80s and kind of continued. So I worked in a small clinic there that was part of their community action organization, which is a program started in 1964. Oh, I know. Very, very great society. I mean, you're just, this is hilarious. AI scholars Working for a community action agency, <laughs> people wouldn't believe it. Sent there yeah. by, sent there by JD Vance, yeah. <laughs> the one who I'm grateful to. Well, we're going to talk about hillbilly elegy in a little bit, so I'm yeah. glad you mentioned JD Vance. But well, go ahead. okay, so so I lived in this town. I'm from. Listen, I'm from Queens, for heaven's sakes. You know what do I know from small town America? It was the first time I ever lived in a the rural area. There's no seven train. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. In fact, the, the Amtrak, I actually lived in Ashland, which everything is about, you know, five miles away from each other. It was five miles from Ironton about. There is an Amtrak and it goes to Chicago, goes to Chicago and it will ultimately go to New York. And it stops in Ashland three days a week 
at a little shed that is unmanned. And I know that because I know that shed and I know the the railway system because it, I would live two blocks from it and my apartment literally shook each time the train came. It was actually mm-hmm. wonderful. And yeah. how many species of train whistles there, there are. It's, you could, <laughs> it's like, if that probably apocryphal about Eskimos in the snow, you know, 32 words or something for snow, but you could come up with 32 words for train whistles. <laughs> and so anyway, so I worked in a clinic and in a sense, you know, patients are patients, people with drug problems are people with drug problems, no matter where they are. There's a universal dimension to that. In D.C., I worked in a methadone clinic for a long time. Fortunately, lost that job while I was away. But you've got people who, and I feel very strongly about this, are in some kind of, you know, psychic pain. And drugs are, yeah, they're fun at first. But if they're only fun and you otherwise have a, you know, a rewarding, busy life, if you feel yourself things getting out of hand, you pull back because you have reward and gratification in your life and you don't want to threaten it with drugs. So I'm not talking about drug use. I'm talking about using drugs to the point of impairing one's life, where even though there are negative consequences in your personal calculus, they're somehow worth it to you. So those were the patients, you know, in the clinic. And I ran a group with a very seasoned social worker and he was so great when patients would, sometimes patients would say, well, yeah, I used OxyContin, but my doctor prescribed it to me. And he said, oh, I get it. So the doctor wrote on the prescription, OxyContin, you know, 40 milligrams twice a day, chop and snort. I don't think so. <laughs> and, you know, I could never get away with that. But, you know, the patients would laugh knowingly because the truth is, and writing an article in this for Yuval National Affairs right now, that unfortunately people who develop problems with prescription opioids are usually not even the patients that they're prescribed for. They're mostly abused by people who, you know, abuse drugs. And among the patients who do develop problems, they tend to have previous histories of addictions or they're concurrently dealing with a depression or something. But this leads into what you originally asked, which is how to conceptualize addiction. And I mean, I'm not going to get into fights with people over whether it's a disease or not. In a sense, that's almost a philosophical question because even philosophers of medicine and science don't really know how to define disease. But I think of it more as a symptom. I find it more useful to think of addiction as a symptom because, because it points to something that's wrong. And if you're living in a town where prospects are bleak, where poverty is you know, pervasive, where the educational system isn't, is weak, where you know, families are in disarray, where you look out on the horizon and don't see much for a future, you might say, as as I did in that Liberties article, which is called actually Dark Genies, Dark Horizons, the riddle of addiction is that you're living under a dark horizon and that drugs are an escape, a solace. Dark genies are what I tend to see, tended to see more, frankly, with people like us, you know, people who appear to have everything. They went to a good school, they had a good family, they have a good future, but for whatever reason, they're deeply unhappy. And then they, they turn to alcohol or drugs as well. But epidemics is a word itself, meaning above the population. You know, when a whole population is involved with drugs, it's usually pointing to, you know, a sick community. So there's no bright line between the two, of course, but this was, a, as I said, a place that was suffering like so many others. So, so Sally, did you go out there and come back thinking that 
people who suffer from addiction or are struggling with addiction are victims of somebody else or of our economy or of you you've already mentioned doctors and that that exaggerating their role in your judgment is too much but tell me where you are on that is it is that it well it doesn't make sense as a psychiatrist i don't think to talk about victims you can talk about forces that impinge on people and those people will often see themselves as victims I mean that in the sense that they don't see that they have any choice and they can't see any way out. But the whole job of psychiatrists is to show people that there are ways out and that they have more control than they think they do. Now, when they're in a community that doesn't have that many opportunities, that makes it harder. But even where, even down in Ironton, you, you know, there were bright spots to be sure. But Looking at it more from a policy standpoint, I mean, there's no question that the crisis, but put quotes around it, but I shouldn't because if there's no question that overdose rates, you know, went up about fourfold since the late 90s. Through a policy lens, it's clear that there are just so many factors that have played a role. I think that the supply versus demand dichotomy still, you know, is a good way to think about drug policy and drug issues. So the demand is something we well, I was just talking about what, what are people's motivations to use drugs. Now, if the drugs are there and people have the motivations, they're going to obviously be used. And there were more drugs because there was, you know, aggressive marketing, there's no question, by pharmaceutical companies. But I must say that, especially in Appalachia, there was always a culture of significant pill abuse. It's just that Oxycontin specifically, while Globally, actually, a, a relatively small volume of all the opioids prescribed, about less than 5% nationally, happens to be incredibly potent because it's long-acting. And because it's a long-acting, what's called oxycodone, which is a semi-synthetic opioid, because it's long-acting, you have to put a lot of the drug inside the pill because it's released over time as opposed to what's called an immediate release preparation, which would be something like Vicodin or Percocet. And the average Percocet is five milligrams or 10 milligrams, but Oxycontin came in doses of 40 and 60 and 80. And at one point there was a 160 milligram pill, although they discontinued that. So if you, if you just take that orally, that's the highest doses are enormously potent, but if you crush them and then inject them or, or snort them, it's an incredibly powerful high. So the Oxycontin really destabilized yeah. a lot of people who already did use probably a lot of pills anyway. There was very lax prescribing. And I've, I've written a long, much longer piece on the history of that. And I, I think you can trace it back to the coal mines and even the coal camp doctors from the you know, 30s and 40s and 50s, where they, were, they prescribed opioids the way an NFL coach would give you steroids. You know, just you've got to get back to the mines. You've got to get out on the field. You've just got to mm -hmm. get back there. And, you know, the coal companies wanted that and the men wanted that because if they didn't work, they didn't get paid. And, and then, of course, there was a culture of moonshine and marijuana, especially in Kentucky, but there forever. So the illegal trafficking networks were already set up. So when Oxycontin came along, it just fell into those grooves and there were, you know, enormous illicit sales. So you were down there and you you were sort of part of the caregiving or healthcare world response to people in 
in need and in trouble and in difficulty. What is the quality of that? Did you think that the apparatus of healthcare for people who are addicted or people who are facing significant healthcare issues was adequate? Well, I came, you know, in 2018, which is you know relatively late in in terms of the history of the most recent crisis, and they really had increased care a lot. You know, there was no methadone clinic in this little town, but that's okay because you need a certain population to have a methadone clinic. But there was one you could go to in Ashland and one you could go to in Huntington. There was uh, buprenorphine certainly being prescribed in Ironton. Buprenorphine is basically a pill that is a opioid replacement. It's, it's FDA approved for opioid treatment. There was lots of counseling. There were lots of church groups and lots of spiritual groups. I mean, formal church attendance, I understood from a, became friends with a Episcopal minister or priest were kind of decreasing, but spiritual churches, non-denominational were growing significantly and they were very strong communities. So people could, could definitely find help. I don't know if that would have been true 10 years ago as much, but it was definitely true by the time I got there. As you mentioned, you're from Queens, and like me, you're a New Yorker, and you probably have a little bit of maybe even a little New York disdain for sort of middle America. But didn't you find that these communities were stronger in a lot of ways than you expected? Oh, I don't have any disdain. I grew up very, very lower middle class. (laughs) I didn't mean it. I meant Um, it more. Well, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, certainly a kind of estrangement, you know, from that kind of settings and well, you know, I always wondered the whole time I was there, am I talking to the right people? Because I feel I only saw, I mainly saw the folks who were struggling the most and the folks who were the most competent, you know, in other words, the, the helping class. Mm-hmm. And by that, I just don't mean the clinicians, but I mean the judges and the store owners that were, you know, trying to keep things going. I guess what I what I hadn't realized is the extent and the strength of religiosity. I never quite, I mean, everyone I met was considerably religious. And my two best friends, one was this priest and the other was a couple who were, I mean, devout <laughs> evangelicals. And I went to church, you know, I never, I'm Jewish. I barely even go to synagogue, I shouldn't admit, but I went to church, you know, a fair amount. Just, I'm just interested. And they were so ecstatic. They couldn't believe that a Jew from New York would go. And I and I'd introduce myself. I am an atheist, but I'm really interested. And they were wonderful. So that was very interesting to me, just the pervasiveness of religion and also the extent to which so many of these people really tried to, it wasn't superficial. They really, I've never met people who really lived for other people. So that was somewhat eye-opening to me. And the other thing I hadn't experienced is how fragile a small town can be. I mean, Robert, we grew up in a place where if the store closed, you knew that that storefront would be something else would be in there in a week. But if something closes in a small place, you know, the ripples are really profound and it can be a traumatic thing. And I hadn't quite, you know, realized that the community, I never thought about it as an organism before Mm -hmm. and how fragile it could be. So so that was really eye-opening. In a way, I wish I could. People would always say, "What did you learn about addiction?" Nothing. I didn't learn anything really new, <laughs> because as I said, there's a universal dimension to that. But you learned something about America, sounds to me. Oh, for sure. And and as far as addiction goes, I will say I I did think more about this individual versus communal level of addiction, 
And I did wonder why I never saw inner city addiction this way before. I mean, we'd always think about the folks in Harlem or, you know, inner city Chicago or Philadelphia. This was just part of the local pathology that there'd be addiction. And you could, of course, you could say there was, but I I don't think there was enough thought as to why. I mean, I don't think we started asking as a nation that much why people use drugs until until this time around. And maybe well, you've been selling. Found a cliche here, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I don't know what the cliche you're going to use is because it's well that the victims um, were white. Now that exactly, I was going to say now that they're white, people are paying attention, and I think there is something to that for sure. I also think that in a small town where the law enforcement knows everyone, that's very different dynamic mm-hmm. than where you drive into to Harlem from your home in Long Island, and you're not part of the community as a, as a policeman. There's a very different quality to that and a, and a sense of you know seeing people, I think, much more as individuals, and you probably knew their father, and so that's very different. And I also think there was a lot of fatigue with the drug war and, and, and over-incarceration and all that you know, it's sort of good timing for the poor folks who did get caught up in this because there's much more emphasis on drug court and on trying to keep people out of the criminal justice system in ways that, you know, ruin your life, like give you a record or take you away from your community by putting you in jail. As you said, you came into this late in the deal. I mean, the opioid crisis began years before and reached a peak. Did you come away thinking that we're making progress, that things are getting better? Well, they're not really getting that much better, unfortunately. I mean, this is the highest 2019, so that's even before the pandemic, the highest year of overdose death, you know, 50,000. I don't know that that means more people are using drugs. It just means that there's more deadly drugs out there, and I'm referring mainly to fentanyl. But that's not getting better. And now methamphetamine is becoming a much more popular drug. In fact, I just saw, I still get the Ironton Tribune and of all their arrests in the last month, like 63% of them were from, oh, they're drug-related, methamphetamine. Now, methamphetamine is not as deadly. It's terrible for me. It's horrible for the body and, and the mind. But it's not as deadly unless it's mixed with fentanyl. And unfortunately, you know, one pernicious development is that fentanyl seems to be tainting most of the many drugs that are being sold. So when you die with, from stimulants, it may well be because it was contaminated with fentanyl. As I said, there were little bright spots in the town. I mean, you could meet people who were opening. Again, I don't know if they're there now, given the pandemic. I wanted to visit, but obviously I'm not yet. And they would open, you know, stores and, you know, small little coffee shops or clothing stores, and they were enthusiastic. And these were middle-aged to older people who really wanted to save the community. Uh, But things just seem to be puttering along. There's enormous debt in that town. You know, people want to be guardedly optimistic. I do. But that's where it is. It's guarded optimism. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you see the pandemic affecting already high rates of, you know, these deaths of despair, whether they're from mental health, isolation, addiction issues, how does the pandemic kind of compound these these already very significant problems? Well, certainly there are, there definitely are more overdoses and people are smoking more and drinking more now. I don't know that the latter is necessarily at, to the extent of people becoming alcohol, sort of dependent alcoholics, quote unquote. 
But anytime there's more use of a substance, there's obviously going to be a subset that is more, you know, afflicted. But for overdoses due to, you know, illicit drugs, you know, there are several forces. One is the emotional response. Just the, just being isolated is depressing. Maybe people have lost their jobs, so they have more stress. Some people are really worried about getting sick, actually, though that's a course, source of stress, where they're stuck at home with kids or a spouse who's and a spouse is abusive. So A, there's all that stress. Then folks who use, if they use alone, I mean, that's the bad, you're always in the harm reduction world. You're counseled to use with someone else because you don't really know what you're, you don't always know what you're getting. And you're also told to use with someone else and you use first or they use first. The point is somebody has to be alert in case the other person has an overdose. And now if you use by yourself, there's no one to administer naloxone or call the cops or even just, you know, drive you to the ER, the, the old drop them off at the ER kind of thing. There's a lot of disruption to illicit sales. So you don't really necessarily know what you're getting. You may be buying from someone else. So you may be getting something that's, you know, less reliable, so to speak, and overdose. And then it's harder to get into treatment because some treatment programs have had to shut down and it may be harder to get naltrexone, which is, excuse me, naloxone naloxone, which is the mm-hmm. antidote. So all that adds to why there are more overdoses. Now, the good news is there's more use of telemedicine and AA meetings like tele-AA, which a lot of people feel is very, very helpful. But you know, it's a dangerous time. And anyone who's already had a pre-existing problem, you know, with depression or anxiety and tends to relate, react to stress with an intensification of those symptoms, those, that stress being any kind of stress, they're certainly going to have more problems. But then on the other hand, you read, in fact, there, this was a piece from Brad Wilcox at AEI from data that were collected in May and July. Now, maybe things have changed, but eighth graders were actually not doing so bad. Eighth graders, especially if they could spend more time you know, with their family and felt that their families had become closer. And also there's an article in November in the Journal of the American Medical Association that people over 65 had much lower elevations in depression or substance abuse. And But yeah, there's a lot of, you know, suicides are, are continuing to climb. So it's a difficult time. And, you know, I think we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's still, it's yeah. been So Sal, you've written a couple times over the course of the pandemic that cautioned us to pay too much attention or over-rely on the advice on economic issues coming from the medical world. That, you know, I've gotten a sense that you sort of feel, guys, stay in your lane. In the balance between, in responding to the pandemic, between looking out for the overall economy and the, the strength of communities, and looking out for the health consequences of the disease. Have we got it right in America, or where where do you come down? I'm going to ask you to ask, invite me on in a year, and I'll let you know. I think that's really a <laughs> kind, of, kind of a question. I do think that, I mean, what I did write about, and I, I continue to be amazed at, shocked, is back after the George Floyd, around that time, a very high-profile epidemiologist. I remember she wrote in Twitter, and I'm paraphrasing, but but barely, that, you know, go out and march because racism is more of a threat to health than you catching COVID. And I put the double standard aside 
which is to say that if people were going out, let's say for a pro-life march or something else, I don't think the directions would have been as encouraging. There would be none or the woman would be cautioning. This was a epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins, otherwise incredibly talented, but woman, but there wouldn't have been that kind of reassurance. But putting that aside, what I find problematic is that people who are experts in epidemiology, and I don't doubt she was an expert who could have given you as best an estimate of the risk as one could come up with at the time. Granted, there are models involved. No one's perfect. But the epidemiologists, some of them anyway, feel that, that somehow this is within their purview to tell you which risks are worth taking. That's what I found problematic. And that's what I find problematic in, well, public health in particular, but to some extent in medicine lately as well. We don't have to get into this in too much depth, but there's a big push now, as there is society-wide, to adopt an quote-unquote anti-racism you know, agenda, and it's moving into medicine, and you might want to know, well, what exactly does that mean? And some of it makes perfect sense, try to have a more diverse workforce, you know, as much as we can, of med- you know, nurses and doctors, fine, I agree. Affirmative action in the old sense of the word, outreach for talented people who might not, you know, know that certain opportunities exist, that's great. Teaching more about what's called social determinants of health, the extent to which health is you know, more than getting on the right medication that's necessary, but not always sufficient. You person has to take it. They have to be in an environment that's conducive to helping their health. All that's great. Does it vary by racial group? Often, yes. But then you get into the problematic realm, which and that's where this public health doctor went, I think, as well, which is, well, what can doctors really do? How far upstream in terms of social change can they really and productively get without diluting their authority, without taking time away from what they're really meant to do, which is help sick people who are immediately ill. And that's a big debate going on in medicine. There was an article in JAMA by a very well-known, actually, I think it was Don Berwick, who ran CMS under Obama. And he was, I mean, he could write anything he wants, of course, but he was urging doctors to, I don't know, oppose the Electoral College and mm. all kinds of international treaties. And, you know, physicians can do anything. They're a citizens. They can do anything on their own. But to the extent that these kinds of larger social agendas get, start to get woven into the work of what it means to be a doctor is, is a complicated matter. And it's, it's something I'm, I'm working yeah. on as well. I noticed that you did write about in terms of the distribution of the vaccine. Right. And you brought up people who may have said that we should distribute the vaccine based on on race because African-Americans or Hispanics are more likely to be ill because of the, the virus for a variety of reasons that may be unrelated to race. And you've objected to that. But then Dr. Gottlieb, also of AI, wrote something yesterday in the Wall Street Journal saying that the distribution of the vaccine it would be acceptable to take into account the occupations or even the income levels of individuals because people like, as you mentioned, you and I and Phoebe and people at AI, we, we're able to work at home and have been able to avoid risks. But people who have to work in retail or manufacturing or someplace else where they really or they really need the money, they just can't keep their job unless they show up. They are exposing themselves more likely to the contagion. 
And he seemed to indicate that that would be acceptable criteria for determining the distribution of the vaccine. Are you okay with that? Is that okay with you? That's what I wrote in the second paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote it before Scott did. I got it. Damn it. For the first time, I scooped. No, the point is, and then this is what Scott was writing as, as well, is that you don't depend on correlation. Yet there's no question that Hispanics and African Americans, and also income level as well, poor or white, are going to have greater risk exposure because of the kinds of jobs they have, often because they may live in more crowded households and all that take public transportation. No question about that. That's the correlation with the risk or that race is correlation or ethnicity is that correlation. What you want to go after is the cause. In other words, what is the direct reason for the risk? And that is the enhanced exposure. So if you go after who is more likely to be exposed, that will catch a disproportionate number of minority, ethnic and racial minorities. So it would have pretty much the same impact, but it would be driven by a different rationale. And that rationale is we should drive any kind of public health agenda, which is what kinds of circumstances put you at risk. And it just so happens that minorities, as I say, are going to be the ones in those circumstances. So they will be captured that way. But to prioritize race because there have been injustices in the past, which no one is going to argue with, this is not, you know, the time to make amends. This is the time to protect people based on their level of exposure. Now, we said earlier, you made a mention, but when we were talking about Appalachia and, and Middle America and your time in Ohio, we talked about J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance has written a book, The Hillbilly Elegy, and then now it's a movie. Have you seen both the movie and read the book, Sally? Yes. So good, because I have two, and I have some views of it. And I wanted to ask you, the movie somehow has gotten a little more controversy for yeah. some reason. Let's say, I'm not sure what the controversy is about, but the movie is different than the book. And I wanted to ask you, it seems to me it's different because it's really much more about his mother's addiction than it is about the prevailing economic situation in that part of the country, the way the book seemed to be more focused. Did you see that? And do you, do you have a view of whether the movie or the book is a more accurate depiction of what was really going on there? Well, I would definitely read the book. I just think as kind of art, it was richer. I mean, if you want to see a brilliant performance by Glenn Close and a good child actor, I think the young J.D. Vance character was excellent. Watch the movie. But I thought the book was a much more rewarding experience. I mean, I could see why they may have gone to Amy Adams. (laughs) I mean, you, you tell stories with people and work better in a film. But no, I thought the book was excellent. I didn't. Now I'm completely used to the fact that his book is widely criticized. But a few years ago, when I was preparing to go to Ohio, I was stunned to see, because I was reading a lot, trying to read what I could from Appalachian scholars, and almost universally, the, the book was condemned. There's now an entire book called Appalachian Reckoning, I believe, that's the title that's devoted It's a collection of essays devoted to a critique of hillbilly elegy. And a lot of people I met in, in Ironton were kind of resentful of the book. And then the reasons are always the same, which is, and we have to listen to them, which is that he emphasized too much this 
ethos of self-sufficiency and that he made us, I'm quoting here, I'm paraphrasing, but kind of he made us all look like, you know, a bunch of toothless hillbillies. But, you know, first off, I think he tempered many of those. In other words, I think he very much acknowledged that they were hardworking people as well. And But that was his experience. And, and the criticisms are coming from often from folks who are often place so much primacy on, you know, quote unquote, lived experience. Well, that was his lived experience. And he became, you know, astronomically successful. I mean, it would, he wouldn't expect the average person to, and there's a lot of luck. You have a grandma like that. You have, you know, some innate talent and you get some lucky breaks. You meet Amy Chua, you get into, you know, and Yale Law School. I mean, I think he'd be the first to say, listen, this is not going to be a feature that most of you will have or even want, but it could be better for you with certain different choices. I mean, that's just a fact. I think he's sympathetic to, to folks, but that's, that's just not how it's seen by so many. Yeah. I mean, I think the evocations of personal agency and, and his work and effort that led to his achievements is a good thing. And I guess I'm, I've been more focusing on the different emphases in the book versus the movie, but that sort of characterization of his efforts leading to positive outcomes never bothered me. I mean, it's just a fact. He worked hard. He went in the military, went to college, did well, got to go to Yale. Uh, well, a lot of the intellectual, you know, intellectuals who are criticizing them have been similarly successful. I mean, they're at universities, University of Kentucky, where, you know, other, I mean, a lot of them stayed local and they've been very, you know, successful. But you know, they're often in a field called Appalachian Studies, which, you know, has a little bit of a, from what I could see, has a little bit of that tinge that other fill-in-the-blank studies have. You know, women's studies or critical studies is that there, you know, there's a certain kind of suspicion of, of anything that, you know, of the military or of corporate America. And he was at a, a hedge fund for a while or a venture capital or whatever. So I think there are just, you know, kind of signposts in his life that also activate some of their kind of innate things they're a little bit innately resistant to. Well, this has been a great discussion. Mm -hmm. Is there something in these fields or these topics that you want to make sure you say and that you you really think is an important point, given the time we're in? Well, again, since I'm, I mean, my primary identity still you know, as a psychiatrist and we start out talking about addiction, I, I guess I would say that we really have to be so careful about over-medicalizing that condition. I mean, you can call it a disease, but you have to be aware of the kind of disease it is. And it's a kind of disease that people develop for reasons that responds to contingencies and to hope. And I do think, I really do think there's been some real social learning this time around, and largely because of who was affected, as we said, you know, non-inner city, you know, rural white folks. And whenever white teens are affected, people pay attention to that as well. I see glimmers of hope that we're getting away from this hyper-medicalized brain disease model, not arguing that drugs, of course, they affect the brain. And that, that, that's not even an argument. Of course they do. But it's in a much larger context of circumstance and, you know, and community. And those are the things we can, and psychology, but those are the things we can affect and ideally change the whole picture here in terms of why people choose certain methods, self-destructive methods, 
to cope. And again, to see it in too stark a medical or reductionist way, I think really distracts us from the kinds of remedies we need in the large picture. The short term, of course, our medications help and our therapies help, but, but it really is about you know, rebuilding lives, not just fixing broken brains. Well, this is a good way, a tough subject, important yeah. subject, and one of our greatest scholars. Sally Sattel, great to have you, and hope you'll come back again sometime. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.